0: The very last chapter of the book of Second Kings, chapter 25, will be our uh, focus there tonight. Um, I want to read. Uh, I'm going to read a lot of this chapter. I'm just going to read it at the very beginning, all the way down to uh, verse 22, because I want you just to get the sense here. You know, I've mentioned as we've been going through Second Kings that it's still the, uh, the scene where every chapter feels like you're still falling. <laughs> you know haven't they hit rock bottom yet well it's going to (laughs) happen like the the car crash ends tonight um this is the end of the book verse 1 of chapter 25 in the ninth year of his reign in the tenth month on the tenth day of the month nebuchadnezzar king of babylon came with all of his army against jerusalem and laid siege to it and we've seen this before we've seen other armies coming and sieging them before but there's always been a way out hasn't there there's always been prayer, there's always been Isaiah the, the prophet, or Elijah uh, the prophet back in, in chapter 6 who's hanging out and like, oh, he'll come rescue you, he'll give deliverance, but now, verse 1, the end of it, they built siege works all around it. Verse 2, so the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. they got got this massive siege going on. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city, there was no food left for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city. All the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. Though the Chaldeans were around the city, they went in the direction of Arabia. So now you've got all the people from Jerusalem, the king's army himself. They're done. They're out of there. It's been abandoned. Um, this is the, the last rats leaving the sinking ship here. They're headed off to Arabia. They don't care about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They don't care about the Chaldeans who are behind them. Remember, the Chaldeans and the Babylonians are enemies right now doesn't matter for them anymore they just want out the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king overtook him in the plains of Jericho and all of his army was scattered from him they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him so captured by the Chaldeans turned over to the king of Babylon here so all of Jerusalem's enemies are (laughs) they're all in it together at this point they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah who's the, the king before his eyes put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. This is how the story ends. This is the last king, hook in his nose, eyes out of his head, led like some kind of fish all the way to Babylon. In the fifth month, in the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar here, so 10 years have gone by since verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burns the house of Yahweh and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he'd burned down. So this is 10 years later. It wasn't enough to take the king. 10 years later, they go back and they burn anything still standing. All the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. The rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. So basically, he left the homeless there to you know, make sure the vines don't grow over the piles of rubble that were left. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of Yahweh and the stands in the bronze sea that were in the house of Yahweh, the Chaldeans broke into pieces and carried the bronze to Babylon. And you remember, this is, there was a big deal about that bronze bull back at when the temple was dedicated, back in 1 Kings. And it just took like a massive amount of effort to get it in there. And you're wondering, how did anybody ever get it out? Well, they broke it into pieces is how they got it out. Have you ever tried to move a, you know, a couch out your door, and it's just too big? You know, Well, I've always wanted a love seat. <laughs> That's what they do here. They just butcher up what was too big to be looted before is now just cut into pieces. Verse 14, they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers. Those are little things that put out candles and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service, the fire pans, also the bowls. In other words, this temple has been looted so many times and sold out so many times throughout the book of 2 Kings, but now they're down to just you know, the the pots and pans that the priests used, they're gone. What was of gold, verse fifteen, the captain of the guard took away as gold, and what was of silver? As silver. <laughs> and it's kind of a funny phrase just right there. If it was gold, hey, he took it as if it was gold. And if it was silver, took it as if it was silver. Um, in other words, they're just looting the place. I mean they're not they're not doing anything fancy here. They're just taking everything out as their own. As for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of Yahweh, the bronze and all the vessels was beyond weight. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits, and a latticework of pomegranates, all of bronze, around the capital. The second pillar had the same with the latticework. This is all just taking language from earlier in the book of 1 Kings. And remember, First and Second Kings used to be one, cons- one whole scroll, one whole book. It was likely split because of the length of the scroll. It remains two books in the English Bible, but it was originally one book. And so what's being here, this is going back. This is flashback time flashback to when Solomon was building the temple we had the whole chapter about this stuff and now you see it's there it's just being taken now verse 18 the captain of the guard took Sariah the priest and Zephaniah the second priest and the three keepers of the household and from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men in war five men of the king's council who were found in the city and the secretary of the commander and the army who mustered the people of the land 60 men of the people of the land who are found in the city that's what's left 60 people Remember how the book of Numbers just catalogs the massive amount of people that entered Israel? This is the end of their story. There's 60 people. And that's what's left. Well, Nebuchadnezzar in verse 20, the captain of the guard took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. The king of Babylon struck them down, put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken in exile out of its land. There is nobody there. Left. Now, time is going to go by. Ten years are going to go by. In those ten years, more people are going to come back and be put back in there. There will be some Jews that trickle back in. Jeremiah is part of this trickling back in group. Jeremiah left it when it was deserted, it was destroyed. He comes back to it. That's when Jeremiah writes the book of Lamentations. He wanders back into it. There's nothing there. That's kind of in the white space between verse 21. Then 22, now Jeremiah comes back and there are new people who have moved in after its desolation. You know, Ten years have gone by. And over the people who remain in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, the governor. Now when all the captains and men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah the governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah and Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and Jonanen, the son of Keriah, and of Saraiah, the son of Tahameth the uh, Neotaphite, and, and Jazaniah, the son of Makathite. Now this list is repeated also in Jeremiah 42. And that lets you know that the corresponding, the cross-reference here, is that they bring Jeremiah in on this. And they asked Jeremiah for advice. Now, verse 24, Gedaliah swore to them and to their men, saying, Do not be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. Now, Jeremiah 42 is letting you know this is Jeremiah's advice to them. And I just want to pause here. And, uh, you know, it's complicated with the different factions and parties, and so I thought of an illustration that might help you get your mind around what's happening here. I used to coach this kid in soccer, uh, actually, Jordan and I coached him together, I believe. His name was Scott. And Scott was a player who would always do the opposite of what he was told to do. Uh, he was a coach's dream, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, there was an epiphany that we had with Scott one day. Scott played sweeper. If you know anything about sweeper, that's center defense. He's, he can make runs forward. He can go on the attack occasionally. But he's supposed to more or less stay at home. But I mean, I'm telling you, if you told Scott to stay home, he would think this is the perfect opportunity to counter and he'd be gone. And if you said, Scott, go forward, he would park himself back at defense. Throw-ins. He liked to take throw-ins. Sweepers are not supposed to take throw-ins. Like, he'd grow out of that once you turn, like, 12 years old. Stop taking every throw-in, okay? But no, not Scott. He wanted to take all the throw-ins. He thought he was good at them. I I trust Scott will never listen to this message. Um, (laughs) Well, we had an epiphany one day. We told Scott, stop taking throw-ins, and he kept taking them. And so... From the sideline, we decided let's tell Scott the opposite of what we want him to do. So we said, "Scott, you need to take every throw-in." And guess what? No more throw-ins. It was brilliant, brilliant. And so, it, and we would tell the other players, "Hey, if you hear us tell something to Scott that does not apply to you, okay? We're just talking to him." And that's how the rest of the season went on. And it was, I think, a, a master stroke of coaching right there, <laughs> that you just told Scott the opposite of whatever you you wanted. He went on to play college soccer, amazingly enough. <laughs> What's happening here in Jeremiah 42 and 2 Kings 25 is a bit of the opposite nature here. And Jeremiah is, is discovering the Israelites, these, these, those who are left in Jerusalem, are the opposite party. Jeremiah has spent his life telling them to surrender. Give it up, people. You're going down. And they would not listen to him. For decades of ministry, Jeremiah was begging his people to surrender to the Babylonians, pack it up, give up, and they never would. And finally, they're destroyed and sent off into exile. Now, Jeremiah comes back 10 years later and he says, Okay, you guys, stay, (laughs) stay here. You don't need to leave. Gedaliah is your new governor. God is pleased with him. He's not royal blood, but you know what? It doesn't matter. God is pleased with him. Just stay here. I wanted you to go to, to go to Babylon a while ago. You didn't go. So now, it's almost like that game show with the three different doors. I think there was a game show with different doors, and you got to choose which door. Maybe I'm making that up, but I have a memory of that game show. And Jeremiah's saying, door one, your best case scenario here was that you would have gone to Babylon 10 years ago. That's over. Door two, just stay here in Jerusalem, man the rubble. God's going to keep you in exile for another 70 years, and then Jerusalem will repopulate. But just stay here. And he even tells them in Jeremiah 42, look, if you want to scatter, scatter. That's fine with me. Just don't go to Egypt, okay? So Jeremiah is saying, door one, go to Babylon. Door two, stay here. Door three, and there's a whole chapter. Again, Jeremiah 42, you can read it on your own sometime. Jeremiah goes a great length to tell them do whatever you want. Just do not go to Egypt. <laughs> now back to Second Kings twenty-five. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, the son of Elishma of the royal family, came with the ten men, and they struck down Gedaliah. They killed the governor God gave them. I mean, these people. And they put him to death, along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with the Mishpah. Then all the people, small and great, and all the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt. (laughs) For they were afraid of the Chaldeans. I mean, this is unbelievable. It's impossible to, to overstate how upset God would be with them for this. He told them for years to surrender, and they wouldn't surrender. And now all it takes is Jeremiah saying, "Okay." embrace the babylonian king that you've been flirting with for forever embrace the governor he gives you and just live here fine i get it you don't want to surrender just live here and so they murder the guy and then they go off to egypt egypt by the way is symbolic for going away from god God raised Israel up out of Egypt. He led them to Israel. And remember, the whole way there, they were complaining about having to go to Israel. I mean, they wanted to go back to Egypt where there were wonderful things like leeks and onions and slavery. I mean, it was awesome there, they thought. And now, centuries later, possibly up to eight or 900 years later, they're back into Egypt again. I mean, there's hardly anybody left. This is the skeleton crew. I read an interesting story about what happens at Disneyland at night for the few hours between you and know, they finally kick the last high school kids out, and it opens for the early bird risers in the morning, and it's just, it's just cats and cleaners. That's about it that sweep through. It's kind of an interesting story. That's what's left in Jerusalem at this point cats and the cleaners. <laughs> and now, even those people head off to Egypt. All that's left of Jerusalem now is in Egypt. And just get your mind around, that's how the book of Second Kings ends. There's one more paragraph we'll look at in a little bit. But that's how the book ends here. This book started with David on the throne in Jerusalem. That's chapter 1. And now this book ends with nobody in Jerusalem. They all gone away. This is the undoing of all of God's promises how many times through these books, First and Second Kings, have you seen God promise that he would have a descendant from the line of David on the throne? How many times have you seen God say he wouldn't turn his back on his people? Over and over and over again. And yet, yet now at the end of the book, there is nobody there. Now the big question hanging over this ordeal is what happens with God's Covenants and I had slides for you guys. Here we go. What happened with God's covenants? God had made promises to Israel, and those promises seem to be gone. They've been ignored. And so I want to look particularly at two promises tonight. I want to ask these two two questions. What happened to the Davidic covenant will be our first question. The second question, you're going to write them both down now, is what happened to the Abrahamic covenant? Because now at the end of this book, you see both of those covenants, it seems broken. There is no king, I mean there's no capital, there's no temple even. There's no temple, there's not even a basin in the temple anymore. There's no pillars up around it, I mean there's nothing there now. There's certainly nobody from the line of David reigning on the throne. And beyond that, Israel was sent into exile, you know, 200 years earlier. I mean this whole place is shut down. Now, when I say what happened the Davidic Covenant, I recognize there might be some of you here tonight who don't know what the Davidic Covenant is. Well, that comes from 2 Samuel 7. I won't put it on the screen for you, but you can just jot that down and read it on your own. In fact, I'll read you two key verses right now. 2 Samuel 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13. This is the Yahweh God speaking through the prophet Nathan to David. King David, Israel's best king ever. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. And here's the key word, forever. That's called the Davidic covenant. It was a covenant that God made with King David, that one of his descendants would always reign over Israel, and it would last forever. And now the book is over, and there is no king on the throne. And it's not just that easy. It's not just there's no king on the throne. Jeremiah has something to say about this. This is God's word at this time. Jeremiah is not exactly chronological at this point. So chapter 22, even though earlier we talked about 42, just chapter 22 is around this time. This is Jeremiah, Yahweh speaking to Jeremiah. As I live, declares Yahweh. Though Conaniah, the, uh, the second to last king, I think, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, though he were a signet ring on my right hand, God says, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life and in the hand of those whom you are afraid, even in the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and in the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. <laughs> That doesn't make any of the Christian greeting cards, that verse right there. <laughs> Notice the thrust of what he says here. If, though you were my signet ring, and we don't use signet rings, but we would use the, the you know, concept of a wedding ring. That would be the closest uh, parallel here. God's t- saying to the descendant from David, this is the one who's receiving the Davidic covenant. God says, if my promise to David was a ring on my hands, I would take it off and I would throw it, is what God says. I'm not going to actually throw my ring on Mother's Day and all. (laughs) This is what God says. If if, if my promise to David was a ring on my finger, I would take it off and I would throw it. You know where I'd throw it? Actually, into Babylon. That's where I would throw it. So that seems like God breaking his promise, doesn't it? (laughs) He makes a promise with David that your descendant will always be on the throne, and then he tells Coniah, the, uh, the second to last king here, that I will take this promise to you and I will throw it into the wilderness. So what happened to David's promise? And you were fair to ask, will there be a ruler from the Davidic line on the throne of Israel ever again? I mean, if you're reading the Bible pretending you don't know what comes next, the book of 2 Kings, which was written in exile, by the way. So they don't know how this story ends either. This became the, the most recent book they had when it was written. This is all they knew of the story. And the readers would ask, is there a future promise for us? Or is this whole David on the throne thing over and done with forever? And so this is how this chapter ends. Verse 27, in the 37th year of exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the 12th month and the 27th day of the month, evil Meridoach, king of Babylon, <laughs> there's no subtlety there with his name, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. Now he's he's graciously freed. This is the last descendant from the line of David. He's freed in the year that he began to, to reign, this new king, led out of prison. He was a teenager when he was taken into exile. You've learned that in Jeremiah. He was probably 17 years old. You fast forward 37 years. Jeremiah gives you the timeline here. 37 years later, he's led out of prison. So he's in his 50s now, again, practically a teenager and he's taken away. And the king spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. This is the king's custom. In Babylon, the Babylonian king would take nations captive and they would uh, basically slaughter some of their leaders. They would take the more educated and repopulate a different area of the kingdom. That was how the Babylonians rolled. Take people from this city, put them over in that other city, You know, so if we were conquered by Canada, Canada could take us from Virginia and repopulate us and say, I don't know, California, and we would teach them how to do what people in DC do, pass laws or something, I don't know. And and people from California would move out to here and teach us how to drive or something. (laughs) Don't really know how the analogies work, but that's what the what the King of Babylon would do. But he would take the kings of the nations he conquers and keep them at his own table. Almost like a trophy. And you could picture that if the, the conquering king sat down at his banquet hall for dinner and he has all these other kings that he conquered sitting there eating with them. It's kind of a statement of power, a statement of authority. It's a constant reminder who the best king in the room is, right? I mean, you're in his house. And so he puts Jehoiachin. This is the last of the Israelite line. Jehoiachin, verse 29, takes off his prison garments. And every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. That is just a fascinating ending to the book. (laughs) It's sort of, I think, ironically funny that here is their king and he's reduced to taking off his prison garments and relying on another bigger and better king for his allowance. If you remember when you were maybe a high school kid, you got an allowance. And you had to ask your your parents for it. And, you know, there was no direct deposit, at least not in my family. It didn't just automatically come to me. So it was an act of humility every week where I had to go and ask my dad for my allowance. That's what's happening here. The king will be humbled every single week and he gets an allowance. It's just, my, how the mighty have fallen, huh? At the same time, do you pick up the echo of hope in this? This is how the book ends, the last of the Israelite kings. He's still there. Not in Israel, mind you, but something's happening to him. It's as if God took off that signet ring and hurled it into Babylon, but in Babylon it rolled to the front of the king's room. (laughs) In Babylon, that ring is elevated above the other rings. In in Babylon, this king, although he's still subservient, he still needs his allowance. His prison clothes, they're off, but they're in his closet is kind of the way I read this. (laughs) They're not far away. But verse 28 says he has a seat above the seats of the other kings. There's a little bit of hope in there, a little reminder that echoes, just a little ripple in the pond, that some promise is still there. There's some hope still there, even in Babylon. You should be reminded of the fact that God cannot change his mind. This is a basic presupposition of the Israelites. Psalm 110 verse 4, Yahweh has sworn and he will not change his mind. So God has promised David that one of his descendants would reign over God's kingdom forever and God has not changed his mind on this. Numbers 23 verse 19 is another verse that says the same thing. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? In other words, if God promises something, he will do it. Now, sometimes he will show mercy instead of judgment, like in the case of Jonah with with Nineveh, where he said 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown, and then Ninevites repent, and they receive mercy instead. But that's not a changing of his mind, because even in that context, you know, Jonah knew what God meant, right? So Jonah went up to the hill to pout. He went up there and said, I knew you would do this. So you can't say, well, that's God changing his mind when God's prophet said, I knew you were going to do this. (laughs) typical God just saving people drives him crazy (laughs) so the question here is what happened to the Davidic Covenant if God cannot undo his covenant then the Davidic Covenant stands but the king is gone here's this other king kind of a king with a lowercase k I guess and a big asterisk after him (laughs) and he's certainly not the Savior we don't even remember him and it sounds cheesy to say this but I mean you know this that Jesus becomes the greater king. That Jesus is the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant. And that's just the easy way to preach the book of Second Kings is at the end of every chapter say Jesus is the greater king. And so I've resisted the temptation to do that all book, but to save it for here. Because that's how this book ends. It really does want you to ask the question, was God lying to David? was God lying to Solomon? Because now there is no more Judah and there is no more king. There's this dude off in Babylon getting an allowance from someone else. And so you know that that cannot possibly be the, the fulfillment of the covenant. So there has to be a different category of king. Not cat- the category is not the guy with the throne and sitting in the temple around his army with the men of war, because you know what the men of war do. They go through the hole in the wall and they get out of town. This is why the New Testament makes such a big deal about the kingship of Christ. Because in the New Testament, the, the gospel writers know and the apostles know if Jesus is not king, then he is not the promised Savior. Because the promised Savior has to be king. And this is why there was so much confusion with the disciples. They were always asking. Uh, so Jesus says, now when you're going to overthrow Rome? <laughs> Just asking. Yeah. Now would be a good time if you wanted to overthrow the Roman Empire. This would be the perfect time. And of course, Jesus didn't do that, yet he still established himself as king. And let me give you a few verses so that you understand that. Matthew 21, verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. That was the command on Palm Sunday when Jesus, the last week of his life, enters into Jerusalem. The whole point of the proclamation was that here comes your king, but not like the kings that actually reigned back in the Old Testament, because here he comes in on the donkey. Or the inquisition of Pilate. Remember, Pilate corners Jesus and, uh, and interviews him. Interrogates would be a better word. Luke 23, verse 3, Pilate asks Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? That is a yes or no question. Jesus is usually very good at g- with turning those questions against his opponents. But not this time. Are you the king of the Jews, they ask. And Jesus says, You have said so. See the perfect balance of that question? doesn't say no doesn't deny it because he is the king but he doesn't say yes because he's not the king like Pilate saying he's not Pilate's rival he's not a king like Jehoiakim or Manasseh he's a fundamentally qualitatively different kind of king so you have said so this by the way is why the sign when he was crucified over the top of him said the king of the Jews in three different languages Obviously, Jesus never claimed to be a political king. He told people to honor Caesar and to pay taxes to Caesar. He never broke Roman law. He was a subject of the Roman Empire. That's not what he means by declaring himself as king. So it's worth asking, how is Jesus the king? And the answer is that he is the king in the kingdom of God, which is another way of saying he's God, right? (laughs) If you're the king in the kingdom of God, that makes you God. If you're king in the kingdom of Jesse, that makes you Jesse. <laughs> if you're the king in the kingdom of God, that makes you God. So you have to stare at this question for a second and say, what happened to the Davidic covenant? The Davidic covenant had echoes that go beyond the line of David that reigned in Jerusalem during the time of Second Kings. And they echo out into the future. And the Pharisees understood that. That's why they kept trying to trap Jesus. That's why they hated him as king. Remember what they told Pilate before he was crucified? They got Pilate to crucify him by saying, this man keeps making himself out to be king. As if to say, he's not our king. Hashtag not my king. (laughs) But he was their king. Even though they didn't vote for him that's the answer to the first question what happened to the davidic covenant it's waiting for jesus to come and fulfill it jesus is this king right now he's reigning on the throne of heaven right now waiting for the future day where he will come to earth and establish his kingdom on earth and so i think this is a basic part of being a christian is that you understand that i meet very few people who who would try to say i'm a christian but i disagree that jesus fulfills the davidic covenant in fact i don't think i can ever remember meeting somebody who says that I think part of being a Christian is understanding that Jesus fulfills the Davidic covenant. He is the promised king. You read Second Kings, uh sorry, you read Second Samuel seven and you get that God is promising the Savior will be on the throne and here's the answer. It's a future Savior king in a different capacity. But now at least the second question. Where did the Abrahamic covenant go? This is a different covenant, remember? Not the Davidic covenant. Long before the Davidic covenant was the Abrahamic covenant. And this is from Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. This is the Abrahamic covenant. Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, so you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And all the families of the earth in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is the Abrahamic covenant, that God will bless the world through the line of Abraham, which becomes the nation Israel. And now you go back to the end of Second Kings, there's nobody there. So what happened to that promise? where did that go? The land is empty, just crickets there. And you can't say, well, God changed his mind on the Abrahamic covenant and gave that promise to somebody else. No, because Romans 11 verse 29, in the context of the Abrahamic covenant, Paul writes this, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So the promise to God that he would bless the world through the Israelite nation still stands. This stands in the New Testament even, by the way. There's still a future promise in Romans 11, the promise of the coming kingdom where it will be fulfilled. So that's the tension, though, by the way. At the end of 2 Kings, where is this Israelite kingdom? It's not there. I mean, the only king that's left is off in Babylon, not Israel. And so the Bible seems to say that there. Yes, there remains a future time where Israel will be the focus of God's kingdom on earth. It's broken off for a time, Romans 11 says, but Israel will be brought back into the fullness in the future. And I meet a lot of people that disagree with this. In fact, it's not an exaggeration to say that the majority of of Christians throughout church history would have disagreed with this point. People very quickly say, oh, the promise of David to David was fulfilled in Christ, but the promise to Abraham uh, that the Israelites would be the ones that bring blessing to the nations, that was either fulfilled in the past with no future fulfillment, or it's been taken from Israel and given to the church. And so that's why I want to stress this point. When the book ends, there's no king on the throne, there's no Israel in the land, but both promises are fulfilled in the future when God establishes his king on his throne and when God will bring blessings to the world, not just through the previous birth of Christ, but through Christ reigning on the throne of David on earth. A very clear verse about this, Acts chapter 1, Jesus after his resurrection So he's already come to the world, already born, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, resurrected three days later, now is teaching people in the upper room. And he teaches them first for 40 days on the kingdom of God. That's what Luke says. For 40 days, he taught on one thing. That one thing was the kingdom of God. When he's done, it's question time. The disciple asks the question, is it now that you'll restore the kingdom to Israel? After Jesus taught on it for 40 days, their first question was, is it now that Israel gets his kingdom back? It's not plausible to me that they could have heard Jesus teaching for 40 days in the kingdom and not heard, no, there is no future kingdom for Israel because the Abrahamic covenant was fulfilled already or it's given to somebody else. Another way of saying the question is what if Jesus fulfilled the Davidic promises but not the Abrahamic promises? And I say he fulfills both and he will fulfill both in the future. It's not now that the kingdom is assured to Israel is how Jesus answers the question, meaning that it will be later history is linear it's not circular in eastern philosophy history is circular it's always repeating itself in in biblical chronology history is uh it's teleos is working towards maturity it's going somewhere and it's going towards the fulfillment of god's promises to israel in his kingdom this is Haggai chapter 2. Let me read you kind of a longer section here. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders will go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares Yahweh, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shelatel, declares Yahweh, and make you like a signet ring. We've heard that line before, right? For I've chosen you, declares Yahweh of hosts. In Jeremiah 42, God hurls the ring off into Babylon. And then at the end of the exile, that's when Haggai 2 is written. At the end of the exile, he gets the ring back and puts it back on his finger. In other words, the promise is still future. And the promise is still future. There's hope in the future. The hope is solidified when God tells the rubable that ring I threw away, I've picked it up and put it back on my finger. It's astonishing to me how the promises to Israel are not erased at the end of 2 Kings. In fact, they're expanded. If we had time tonight, which we don't, but if we did, we'd go to Ezekiel promises where Ezekiel prophesies to the mountains and he grows the promises to Israel. He doesn't say, oh, you had your chance and blew it, now they're going to the Gentiles. He expands their promises. And says, There will be a time of peace on the mountains. Your ne- enemies will never again attack you once the Savior reigns here. In Ezekiel's mind, in Daniel as well, in Daniel 9 and then in 11, Daniel sees the promises given to David and the promises given to Abraham as fulfilled together in this future kingdom that will be established on earth. So, where do we fit in in this? Well, James 1, verse 18, we are the first fruits of this kingdom. We're not the fulfillment of the kingdom. We're the first fruits of the kingdom. The fulfillment still is future. This is why we believe that Jesus is going to return to earth, bodily return to earth, establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, reign over the world from Jerusalem as the true son of David and the true fulfillment of Abraham's promises, that peace will truly come to all of the world through the reigning Savior from Jerusalem. This is why the New Testament begins right out of the gate with this declaration. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And notice the two promises, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Lord, we're thankful that you are a God who fulfills promises. And no promise is too difficult for you to fulfill because you made them. We often boast of things that we can't accomplish, but not you. You declare the impossible and then achieve it. What a ride this study of Second Kings has been, but Lord, from this we take away the promise that your kingship in Israel 3,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago, was not the fulfillment of your promises. There remains yet, as Paul says, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We look forward to the day when you will come back to earth. As John ends Revelation, we pray even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Pray that you would establish your kingdom here on earth, that you would reign, that your kingdom would come, and that your will would be done on earth as it is right now in heaven where Jesus, our King, reigns. Lord, we're grateful that the promises and calling of God are irrevocable. They are sure that we can build our life on them. We're thankful for these truths. We give you thanks for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in my mind, I wanted to do some time of question and answers about this, but uh, time has just gotten away from me. Uh, you have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you wanna learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington DC area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.